Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It's June the 9th. It's not June the 9th, 1968, but that's almost what I said because June the 9th is often followed by 1968 when I'm asked a question. Mm -hmm. There you go. It's the birthday. It's the birthday. Thank you for all the well wishes um, over the text line. You can text me anything. Don't forget that. Um, May or may not read it on air, but I see them all. Thank you so very much. The text line is open 877-933-2488. Eight four, um, yes, it's my birthday. For that, um, we should really honor my mom and my dad. So, uh, Larry in heaven, Ruth Ann in Northeast Georgia, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I, I wouldn't literally be here if it weren't for you. So birthdays matter, but I want to um, focus us in this morning on rebirth days because your rebirth day, my rebirth day, actually matters at least as much, if not more, than my birthday. I mean, no, your birthday results in however much life you have here and now uh, on this terrestrial ball. But your rebirth day, my rebirth day, is when I was born again into a living hope. And so my rebirth day um, matters. The fact that you're reborn matters. First Peter 1, 3 to 9, if you're going to answer the question, where in the word are you today? Here's uh, an answer to that question. First Peter 1, 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen, amen, and amen. That is my rebirth day. That is, um, that is the hope of glory. That is my deliverer. If you want some clarification and a reminder of what it means to be born again, read John chapter 3 today where Jesus talks about the necessity of of being born again, and he explains it to Nicodemus, you know, what it means to be uh, born of the flesh uh, and what it means then to be born of the Spirit. I'm so thankful to God that I've been reborn. Have you been reborn? I mean, you were born. You've got a birthday. Have you been reborn? Do you have a rebirth day? 
Do you recognize and receive the one who was born to die that you might be delivered from death to life? The life I now live, I live unto the Lord, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, a reborn life. Birthdays matter. Yeah, absolutely. But as Christians, rebirthdays matter even more. So happy rebirthday to all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And for those of you who have not yet, have not yet allowed yourself to be delivered by Jesus, let him do what he came to do, which was die that you might live. Listening to Mornings with Carmen, I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. Next up, Peter Kapsner. Peter Kapsner is back in the house. He's going to be your host all next week on Mornings Without Carmen. I'm going to take a little uh, vacay. But he's here today in his regular slot on Thursday morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen, and happy birthday. You know, if if I was to whip up a cake in Minneapolis here later this morning and drive it down to Tennessee, what kind of what kind of cake am I making for your birthday? Okay, you're actually just going to go by um, Good Earth and pick me up some of those ginger cookies and come by the studio because uh, I'm here. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> so I'm off site today and you're actually in studio. I could have uh, come to studio. because you're not paying attention. Out. You're not paying attention. Oh, no, I'm not no, paying attention. So but you okay. know what? I will. I'll pick up those ginger cookies. You just wait. There'll be All two right. dozen of them. No, 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 no. That's too many. That's too many. But yeah, but if yeah, but you it, would That's be like elementary school. You got to share them with your friends, oh, right? Isn't that how that works? Those good earth ginger cookies. I don't know what they're putting oh. in them. <laughs> this is so good. Okay. They are so good. Uh, that is not why you're here today. You are here I'm, to talk about the rise of, of uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgenderism as a social and political identity that that is that is why you're here today that is a mouthful um what what's going on because we we've moved into a period of time where this is no longer something that uh you know people are talking about having been born this way this is a an adopted social and political identity this has become a way of being that people are intentionally moving into yeah, and you sent me an interesting chart this last week, too, to see since the the Obergefell Amendment was passed, making same-gender marriage the law of the land, what the rise of different and alternative forms of sexual expression has been since that time. And so people are, are puzzling over what the real reason is why we're seeing this rise to somewhere around 20 percent or even north of 20 percent of young people are identifying themselves in a non-traditional sexual kind of way, whether it's non-binary, whether it's um, gay or lesbian or <clears throat> something on the continuum of, of a gender dysphoria. And and so the question is, is, is why, right? And it, I think the most popular answer, in at least in popular culture, I don't think it's the answer, but the most popular answer is that well, we finally have the freedom and the safety to express what has always been true, because historically the numbers have always hovered around two to three percent across different um, cultures and different times in history. And so why the rise to 20 percent from two to three percent? And people will say, well, we're finally safe 
to be able to express ourselves. So these are what the numbers have always been. Isn't it great how we have now created space in our country for this? So I, I don't think that that explanation holds up, but it's going to be probably the most popular, most likely because it continues the narrative uh, of people wanting to create what they perceive to be a free and open and, and safe environment for people. Uh, some people would suggest that there is sort of a youthful experimentation going on. So just like there was maybe a, a drug experimentation that really rose in the 60s and the 70s, and then people, for the most part, tend to not do drugs later in life, that uh, there, there's an exploration going on, but people will return back to more of a traditional heterosexual kind of relationship, maybe. But I think the biggest thing just has to do with uh, with social contagion and and with educational systems and media and the power of suggestion. Uh, I think we're all really susceptible, Carmen, to the power of suggestion. And young people who are looking for a sense of belonging, looking for a sense of maybe who they are in this world, especially in a Western individualized environment where they don't tend to have a family holding them together as much, or they don't tend to have a common village narrative holding them together. They're looking for a people. And it's, I'll say this, it's pretty easy to find a, a people or a community that will embrace you these days if you have a non-traditional um, approach to sexuality. And so I think it's the embrace of of just being seen and known that is really causing the rise uh, to the to the level that it is. But there's more we can talk about. It's just interesting explanations. And certainly it just speaks to the crisis that is going on among young people. We had 15 of them over at our house last night again, and, and most of them articulate, we're, we're just lonely. We're confused. We, we want to have a people with whom we're hanging out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the need for a sense of belonging, the social contagion aspect of this, um, a searching for um, identity, uh, belonging, and purpose. One of the things that stood out to me in all of this research um, was this number. 52% of students who are in what they describe in this article as highly political majors, including race and gender studies. This gets back to my conversation with Abigail Favalli in the last hour. 52% of students in these majors, race and gender studies majors, identify as uh, LGBTQIAA or gender nonconforming. 52%. So, I mean, if you're yeah. going to be, if you're going to, you're going to go uh, and you're going to study in one of these areas at uh, at an institution of higher learning um, across the country, um, more than 50% of the people you're going to be with all the time um, are identifying somewhere on, uh, you know, on this LGBTQAII plus plus spectrum. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, and you become, you become like the water you swim in. You do. Just a quick point on that, too. And my daughter, Anna, was studying overseas this last year, and she she's now back. But uh, she was um, trying to find friends and, and a social group with which to hang. She's a bit uh, of an arts and drama kind of person, really enjoys that community. She's doing literature and, and uh, some other studies as well. One of the communities with which uh, with whom she was was hanging out week in and week out. Um, she was the only straight female in the entire community of, I'm guessing, somewhere between 10 to 15 kids. And so, I mean, just think about the, the, the staggering reality of that is that um, clearly in gender studies and in sociology, increasingly in political science, but also too a lot of times in arts and theater, you have these these disciplines or these areas of study in which you see the numbers like you just said, they're way north of 50, 60, 70, 80 percent. And, and if you're fair minded about it, 
you have to be able to say there are some social gatherings that that trend towards this power of social contagion. And I think but but that's hard to say. Right? You get canceled so quickly. Right, Carmen, as soon as you start moving into these areas and say, hey, look, there's something else going on besides the fact that we finally figured out all of this sexuality and we should just celebrate everything. That's a really tricky and dangerous public profession to be able to talk about uh, in most circles these days. All right. And in terms of something else that is becoming uh, popular again in the culture and now has its own seminary, we're going to talk next about witchcraft um, and the rise of uh, the attraction of witchcraft to women in the United States of America. That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner. Um, Peter, when we talk about uh, sort of varieties of faith expression that are on the rise in the United States of America, witchcraft, a paganism, um, probably tops the list in terms of active engagement. Uh, what What's going on here? And at least what are some of the theories behind mm. the rising attraction to witchcraft among women? Yeah, I think there's probably two things we can say about this. One is actually specific and understandably connected to the Roe versus Wade um, division that's happening right now. And of course, we're waiting for the ruling for the Supreme Court on that. But more broadly, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, is is I think that people, generally speaking, are feeling um, that they, they really want to investigate a more relational spirituality. And, and what I mean by that is we, we've been coming off uh, maybe five, six generations, and I think you could even trace it back to the Protestant Reformation, where faith was defined by your orthodoxy, meaning what you believe to be true. And so there was so much fighting going back and forth about what was true and what was not true and what was true, and, and people were being burned at the stake, and, um, and there was just such uh, division between Catholic and Protestant, but then, of course, all the splinter denominations of Protestantism as well. Most of them divide on the question, the intellectual question of what is true. And, and I think it, it's stripped out the actual relational dynamic that we're claiming, you and me, Carmen, are claiming, and, and many of the people as part of the Faith Radio family, that we are in relationship with an unseen spiritual being who did take flesh and dwell among us. But when we talk about being in relationship with Jesus, and you talked at the top of the hour about being your, your rebirth day, that we're making a pretty crazy claim that even though I will never see Jesus in this life, I'm actually in relationship with him, which then begs the question, how do you have relationship with the unseen world, world that is reliable? And people have been very hungry because intellectual truth only takes you so far. There, there, there needs to be actual engagement of the whole person. And so we've seen now the re-rise of witchcraft uh, as one expression of how to engage in the spiritual realm. And witchcraft has always remained popular in non-Western world contexts, so that's nothing new. It's just more in these intellectualized contexts of, of the West um, where we're seeing now the rise, because people are just hungry for an actual relationship. And, uh, and of course, they're terribly misguided within witchcraft. Now, add the Roe versus Wade piece of the puzzle here, and women who have typically not experienced or enjoyed any dimension of social power, they've mm. been oppressed and suppressed um, over so many generations and centuries that for many people, and when, many women, Roe versus Wade 
represents an empowerment. Now, it's a misguided and a disordered empowerment, but what's true about it is that women really have been oppressed and, and suppressed, and uh, and so there's this fear among women that if Roe versus Wade gets overturned, as we all expect, that uh, it's an unfounded fear, I would suggest, but it's a fear nonetheless that is understandable, that women will go back to being socially oppressed, and so then they will revert to witchcraft as a means of exercising power over men, over their families, over themselves in our culture, because they no longer have political power. So they're going to re re uh, revert to spiritual power. So to summarize all of that, it's just it's two things. One, there is a, a desire to engage in the unseen realm. And then number two, um, women, I think, are terribly afraid that they won't have power. So they're going to witchcraft now to say, hey, we're getting ready since we're not having social power. We're going to start casting spells and curses and exert our feminine power. Yeah, I learned um, so much just doing a little bit of research for this. I didn't even know there was a thing called hoodoo, um, which is uh, loosely related to um, voodoo. But apparently, right. you know, it, it is about taking things into your own hands. It is about, um, I mean, I, it just it, it's very, very interesting, the confluence of um, kind of cultural threads that get mm. tied up um, and wound up in this conversation about witchcraft. There is a conversation about sexuality, identity, abortion, um, the physical body. Uh, yeah, quote unquote control. Autonomy seems to be at the root of it. Um, but, you know, all of it is an offense to God. And maybe as Christians, that's what we need to keep at the forefront um, of that particular conversation. Hey, one more topic before we let you go, um, because, you know, sometimes I just um, save up headlines because, <clears throat> you know, like, really, I can't share them with anyone else. But I wait around and then you show up and I say, OK, what about this guy who, like, imagines that shape shifting is real? Back to the magic theme. And <laughs> right. he actually now not only dreams of being an animal, he has now a lifelike dog suit that he is wearing. Well, I, know, I think I know. It it's like like we laugh, but then like, aren't you like also like aggrieved? Like I, yeah, it grieves me that this person is so disconnected from the reality of who he is as a man that he not only wants to be a dog, he has invested mammoth amounts of money so that he can have a a fitted to his form dog suit that you know looks pretty real. It's yeah, it's a little frightening to your point, as you said, and and you and I have talked about headlines too in the past, where people have maybe married their pixelated avatar that they that they are interacting with in in digital environments, and there there just is this sort of rise of oh, I it just be it's something we talked about earlier. It's it, it speaks to a lack of a sense of identity. Uh, the the church is the great steward of the idea that we are image-bearing people coming from the eternal God, and as such, we are eternal beings, as C.S. Lewis talks about. You've never met an ordinary person. We are all immortals. So the church really has the answer to the identity questions that so many people are suffering from. <clears throat> and, and if you can help people understand their identity, then, Carmen, I think we can create community around the identity, and people start living in relationships. And I'll tell you what, I, we, we need to have therapy and we need to have uh, pharmaceutical interventions in depression and anxiety and loneliness. I, I understand all of that. But I think the missing link in all of this and perhaps the most powerful missing link is that if we could reestablish a sense of localized parish based kinds of community in which people have people. 
I, I really think that that's going to do the most possible to help um, stem the tide of all of this anxiety and depression. And I think churches can lead the way in that. I think they can create more parish-based kinds of gatherings that then people will find better answers than wanting to dress up like a dog to, to somehow alleviate that sense of loneliness or insignificance. Um, I, so um, I don't know if you know this. We, we'll talk about this at a later date, but um, marriages are now taking place in the metaverse. And, yeah, absolutely. And in one case, um, because a woman wanted to be walked down the aisle, deceased father, they got married in the metaverse where he could be resurrected as an avatar. Mm. So I'm just saying wow. that, like, right? Wow. It, yeah. So I just think that the conversations have grown so complex and um, our sense of who we are and who God is and what in the world we're in the world to do and the relationships then that we have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and then in marriage relationships and with our children, like on and on and on and on and on. The complexity of it is extreme. And we just need to keep telling the truth and refocusing on the reality um, of God and who we are created in his image um, as relational beings intended to be in relationship with one another um, and with him. Amen. I completely agree. We do have a great message and a great hope, and it would be wonderful to profess that, but also express it in the way we do our lives together. Yeah, amen. All right, brother, yeah. uh, thanks so much. Thank you in advance for um, hosting next week mornings without Carmen. Looking forward to it. I expect a plate of ginger cookies Monday morning when I'm there. Oh, oh, we have a recipe uh, that came in from Anne. Oh, she yes. has supplied oh, us with the super gingery ginger cookie <laughs> recipe. So there you go. Send it I'll, over. I'll leave Send it. it. Yeah. Over. All right. Love All right. You're listening it. to yep. Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. John Plake from the American Bible Society on the influence the Bible has on our culture. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, the American Bible Society for the last 12 years has done a State of the Bible report. We're looking at the 12th version of that today with John Plake from the American Bible Society. Hey, John, welcome back. Oh, what am I doing? Uh-oh. You're a little ahead. We, uh, we'll be talking with him in three minutes. Huh. We'll be talking with John Plake in three <laughs> minutes. All right, it's my birthday. I'm a little ahead of things today. <laughs> Uh, yes, I can share the ginger cookie recipe with those of you asking. Just text me at 877-933-2484. I know. I'm sorry. A little ahead of myself. John Plake will be with us in just a moment. Now, those there ginger you go. cookies last night went to her I head. Need a ginger, I, I seriously need a ginger cookie. Um, but I also need the 12th annual State of the Bible Report up next from the American Bible Society. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. A little off, a little off this morning. We'll be right back. All right, now John Plake is really here from the American Bible Society. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we are looking at the latest release from the 12th annual State of the Bible Report from the American Bible Society. John, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Happy birthday. Yeah, and I thank love you. ginger cookies. Got to let you know. So looking forward to getting that recipe. A absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, scripture engagement. Um, we talked last time about the decline in scripture engagement, um, but we want to talk about the importance of it today. Talk with us about human flourishing scores um, and and how they have risen and how scripture engagement is linked to greater hope and resilience. 
You know, it's such a wonderful story. We've talked previously, and thanks for having us back to talk more about this great subject of how the Bible influences all of us in America who choose to engage with it. And what we had been tracking earlier in the year is that there have been some big declines in scripture engagement that we recorded early in the year, but we've gotten to the good news. And so today we released chapter three that really talks about the positive impact that the Bible has on those who choose to engage with it. And one of those big stories is that people who engage with scripture just have a better life overall. So we've collaborated for several years with researchers at Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. They're wonderful people who have come up with a way of measuring what does a a good life look like? What is well-being like in everyday life? And so they've come up with a, a way to measure those things. And they look at happiness and life satisfaction. They look at overall mental and physical health, at living a life that has meaning and purpose, or Uh, feeling that we're people of character and virtue who have close social relationships and have some stability around our financial situation, not always worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. So what's fascinating is during the pandemic, just like you'd expect, uh, well-being went down across America. We really struggled. A lot of things were disrupted for a lot of people. But during the pandemic, we also began to notice something about those who engage with the Bible, and that is that no matter what's going on in the world around them, they just do better than everybody else. I was looking this morning again at the numbers, and and particularly in the areas of meaning and purpose in life and having a sense of personal character and virtue and being happy and, and satisfied with their lives, people who are scripture engaged, just way higher scores in all of those areas of flourishing than the rest of the United States. And it just tells us that when we engage with scripture, we live a better life. And that's really what, you know, Jesus said, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Talk with us about flourishing. When you use that language, when you talk about a better life, um, you know, what, what are you using to to quantify or qualify that term? We actually ask people 12 different questions about how they see themselves in their life. And these were not developed by us. They were developed by social science researchers like the folks at Harvard. And when we put those questions out, we really didn't know what the answer was going to be. Do do people who engage with the Bible do better than others? Are they more satisfied with their life? Are they healthier or not healthier? Do they have better relationships or not? But what we began to see was just that consistently, those who are consistently interacting with the Bible in a way that's shaping their choices and transforming their relationships, they discover that overall, they would say they have a higher sense of well-being, they're more hopeful, they deal with stress better, they're more resilient in the face of hardship. So that's what we mean when we talk about flourishing and well-being. When we talk about a human flourishing index and how we might measure it, um, just to, so that you guys listening know, the the scripture engaged people, so people who are engaged with scripture, that's not, you know, just I go to, to church and I hear someone read a passage, but we're talking about people engaged with God in the context of his word, reported levels of flourishing 19% higher than those who don't read the Bible. So that's like, you know, in these areas um, that are measured in happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health meaning and purpose, character and virtue, close social relationships. Um, You know, so people who are engaged in scripture, they have significantly uh, higher 
self-measures of those than people who are disengaged from the Bible. That's um, that's pretty extraordinary. It's not that we're just, quote-unquote, happier. We actually see substantive differences from our non-Scripture-engaged neighbors in terms of um, health and social well-being. I mean, I, it it's interesting the range of topics that are included in flourishing. You know, it really is. There, there's a, a school of thought, I think, in, in psychology. For years, they used to talk about psychology in, in terms of disease model. They'd say, well, you know, if you're not schizophrenic or if you're not depressed or if you're not bipolar or something like that, then, then maybe you're doing okay. But in more recent years, they begin to think of it in terms of, well, what's going right with your life? And that's that area, which is called positive psychology or well-being psychology. It's where um, these measures of human flourishing have come from. And I think sometimes people ask the question, well, okay, you guys say it's important to read the Bible. You say it's important to engage with God's word, but what's it going to do for me? I mean, is it is all it going to do secure my my heavenly future, my eternity, or is it going to do something for me today? And what we discover by using these measures that weren't developed to measure the impact of the Bible, they were developed to measure people's mental and physical health and their social well-being. When we look at Bible users through the lens of these social science measurements, we discover, wow, it really does make a difference when I engage with God's word, and it makes a difference in my life today. Mm. So we're talking with John Plake. We're talking about the real difference. And when I say the real difference, you know, like measurable difference in terms of uh, how we score ourselves in areas of human flourishing. So the real difference that scripture engagement makes in our lives. Um, John, talk with us about the hope scale. What What is a hope scale and how do I measure myself on the hope scale? It's a great question. You know, the Bible talks a lot about hope and and hope is really the belief that the future is going to be better and that you have power to be involved in making it better. It, that's something that social scientists call agency. And there, there's been a lot of work on measurement around hope uh, for, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 years even. It started at the University of Kansas. Uh, Kansas University's C.R. Snyder came up with the psychology of hope. And now people like Chan Hellman at the University of Oklahoma have hope theory. They particularly work with people who have had adverse childhood events. You may have heard of the ACEs scale, talking about how some children really have difficulties that set them up on a trajectory for difficulties in their lives. And Chan Hellman has looked at the role of hope and how when people are able to develop hope, it can overcome some of the diversities or some of the adversities and the stresses that they've experienced early in their lives. And so that's really what we're talking about. We also wondered, well, okay, if people can have varying levels of hope, how do scripture engaged people do compared to everybody else? And we've been looking at this since 2020 as well. And just consistently scripture engaged people significantly higher levels of hope than others in America. And so it's really heartening to see that, you know, if you might score 16, if you're disengaged from the Bible, and as people begin to explore the Bible, that score comes up to around 17. And then for scripture engaged people, more like 19. So 
um, there are these really noticeable differences going on in the level of hope that people have when they engage with God's word. And I think it's because they understand their life is part of God's story. And there is a trajectory. There's something that's going to be happening um, that they're headed toward. And what they might be experiencing today isn't Mm. the end of the story. Amen. We're talking with John Plake from the American Bible Society. We're talking about um, results, uh, outcomes of the State of the Bible report. You can find what we're discussing at stateofthebible.org. When we come back, I'm going to I'm going to ask John about the generational um differences that they have observed in this 12th State of the Bible report. And we're also going to talk about um trauma sufferers and how much trauma sufferers can genuinely benefit from real scripture engagement. Um, what a timely topic. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We'll be right back. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And he's given us new life. We're talking with John Plake. He serves with the American Bible Society, and we're looking at the 12th annual State of the Bible Report. You can find what we're talking about at stateofthebible.org. Um, John, what did you what did you all find in terms of maybe generational differences in, in terms of Scripture engagement and the way people describe themselves in terms of flourishing? You know, Carmen, there are big differences across generations. We tend to categorize the generations in a way that you might have heard of. So the oldest Americans we call elders. Then we have the baby boomer generation. We have Gen X, my generation. We have millennials. And then we have the youngest adult generation, which is Generation Z. Not all of Gen Z is currently adults. And we look particularly at Gen Z people who are ages 18 to 23. And so as we look at them, one of the things that we wanted to know is, well, how are they doing on the kind of flourishing that we've been talking about? And generally speaking, uh, the younger they are, the less well they're doing. And this shows up particularly when we look at their stress scores. So we use a a standard measure that would be used to evaluate someone for post-traumatic stress. And we just ask, well, what is your level of stress across 10 different measures? And overwhelmingly, Gen Z has higher levels of stress than any other generation. I just want to put this in context for you. So elders on average score less than five on a stress score. Uh, Gen Z on average scores about 15. So about three times as much stress for Gen Z as for the oldest Americans. And that's really telling. Uh, We've noticed a lot of disruption that is just age-related. For emerging adults, they're doing a lot of things for the first time. They're launching a career or they're launching a a lifelong relationship or maybe they're in college or trying to get through college. And now with the pandemic, there's been Zoom and there's been all of these disruptions to the job market and things. There is a lot of stress for younger Americans and a lot less experience handling stress for them. So um, when we think about inviting people to engage with the scriptures. Um, you know, there it seems to me that there are particular times in my own life when, you know, I recognize the the balm that I receive from engaging with the scriptures in particular times of stress or distress, certainly um in the face of um devastating 
diagnoses or trauma. But I'm not sure that as a Christian, when my inclination is to bring scripture to bear in those conversations, I'm not sure that that's well received in a culture where a lot of people are not engaging actively with the scriptures, right? So I want to be a scripture-engaged person who brings scripture to bear on the conversations of the day, but I'm encountering a culture that is maybe scripture-resistant. But you have found that the relationship of people who have experienced trauma and scripture engagement, like they have an overwhelmingly positive effect in terms of their experience of trauma. So can we bring those two conversations together, trauma and scripture engagement? Absolutely. You know, one of the questions that we had and American Bible Society has been involved in working with people who have experienced significant traumas in their lives. And we've done this for quite some time. It started out actually working in the uh, in Central Africa after the Rwandan genocide and the the Congolese Civil War. And you've heard all of these big stories about child soldiers and, and the issues that happened there. Well, out of that, American Bible Society was involved with a group of uh, Bible-oriented ministries that developed something called the Trauma Healing Institute. And we did that because pastors and church leaders were saying, we want to give people the Bible, but trauma is standing in the way. The experiences that they've had are preventing us from, from connecting with them. And what we discovered as we really leaned into scripture is we found, man, there's a lot of difficulty that's addressed in the Bible. There's lament and there's struggle. If you read the Psalms and read David, he's gone through some very difficult times and he pours out that hurt to God and actually finds that God helps him in the midst of it. So we're social scientists. So we wanted to ask the question, when people have experienced, personally experienced a significant trauma in their life, and we define that as something that's that's terrifying, that maybe makes them fear for their life at the time. And we, we asked them, have you had that experience? All Americans who have had traumatic experiences show lower levels of human flourishing, higher levels of stress, lower levels of hope. So trauma has this deep, lasting impact on people. But then we looked at the question, well, okay, if you've experienced trauma, are you engaging with God's word? And when we crossed trauma experience and scripture engagement, and then used those to look at human flourishing, happiness and life satisfaction and mental and physical health, what we discovered is that though trauma negatively impacts all areas of flourishing, scripture engagement is so powerful that it literally reverses those effects. So when we ask people, well, have you had a traumatic experience? And they say, yes. Then we say, well, are you scripture engaged? If they say, yes, here's what we discover. Those people have higher levels of overall flourishing than people who have not experienced trauma and are not scripture engaged. So it's really powerful. There's so much hope that comes from engaging with God's word. So let me just recap it again. When trauma sufferers are scripture engaged, they actually flourish at higher levels than trauma-free people who are not scripture engaged. Yeah, I don't, trauma-free people, um, yeah, I I don't know those people. I, I, I mean, we are afflicted in so many ways in our culture. So thank you so much for making that connection for us today, um, John. If you guys want to read the full report and uh, these reports that are, um, you know, threads pulled out of it, you can do so at stateofthebible.org. If you'd like to connect um, directly with the Trauma Healing Institute that John talked about, you can find them at traumahealinginstitute.org. 
Um, John, as always, thank you so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. It's a pleasure, Carmen. Have a great birthday. Thank you so much. Uh, You can find uh, the American Bible um, Society at AmericanBible.org. We'll be right back. Oh, happy, happy birthday to every girl and boy. Hope this very special day brings you lots of joy. She's giving me a look. (laughs) My producer, Paul Perot, is having such a good time today. And for that, I am grateful. Um, Yes, today is my birthday. Thank you so much for all of the well wishes. Thank you for um, those of you uh, with whom I have now shared the ginger cookie recipe. And then thank you for those of you who went and looked in your grandma's recipe boxes and sent me others. I, I just might just have to go home and um, bake a lot of ginger cookies and do my own, like, kitchen test. I'll let you know what rises to the top. Yeah, there you go. You guys are fantastic. Uh, I love you. Thank you for including me in your day. Special shout-out to uh, uh, listener Matthew in Bayport. Um, I am reading what you sent me, Matthew, so thank you um, so much for communicating with me and letting me know that you're out there. Um, lots of things uh, going on here on the text line. Thank you, each and every one of you, so much. And thank you for apparently the rhubarb that you dropped off downstairs. I will make much of that. You guys are just fantastic and t- terrific. Um, tomorrow is Friday, isn't it? Tomorrow is Friday. Tomorrow is Friday. So we're going to have the um, Friday Farm Report tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, it will be reporting on, yes, I will bring you up to date on the process of mi- mouse eradication. <laughs> I will let you know what is happening with the chickens. Oh, and Millie and uh, Sassy, our dogs, um, are now spending full time in the orchard because, you know, we've got fruit on the trees and it's ripening. And they're none too happy about that. My princess pillow dogs are, you know, now in the orchard and they don't they're not they're not too happy about that. But dogs love to work. And so um, they are chasing squirrels and having a grand old time. But they do miss their princess pillows. So there you go. More on the farm report tomorrow. Um, Thank you so very much to each and every one of you. Blessings on your day. Um, and, And consider, if you haven't done so already, consider Jesus who came to deliver you. Read John chapter 3 today and see what Jesus has to say about being reborn into a living hope. It's one thing you know, to live a a physical life, to, you know, to be born and have a birthday. It's a whole nother thing. It's a whole nother life. It's a whole nother reality to experience being reborn and have a rebirth day. So let me invite you to consider allowing yourself to be reborn in Christ. If you've not yet accepted um, the good grace of God in Christ Jesus, let me invite you, make today the greatest day ever, the day of salvation, your rebirth day. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.